Well, I'm Adam, and I'm the pastor here. I'm so thankful that you're here. If I haven't met you, I would love that opportunity, and I'm also thankful that we have online stuff, so everyone who's online, thanks for joining us there. Today, we are continuing in our series called After Party. We are looking at the response of the disciples. How did they respond to Jesus after he resurrected and ascended? He no longer was walking among them. What was their response? Did they scatter? Did they lose faith? Did they... You know, after a couple weeks, they're like, oh, this was a fun experience with Jesus, and now I'm just like, done. How did they respond? Well, the book of Acts captures many different responses, all positive in God, working through them. And so we're studying that. We're walking through all these different passages. So today's week three of that. As we begin here, I have this question to start you off with. What habit have you had to break in recent years? Is there a habit that you've had to break I know for myself, there's one that's kind of embarrassing to share, but I will work through it and just be honest with it. Uh, as a child, I have, well, okay, the, the habit is I had to break my deep devotion uh, slash uh, generational addiction to video games. I really like those. They're fun. And it's because I, as a kid, grew up on them. Like I was a kid that got to play Oregon Trail on the floppy disk, the, the six and a half inch disk. Anyone do that too? Or is that just me? Okay. So a handful. And from there, growing up, all the different consoles and the computer and all these different things, loved it. Well, then I got married and uh, we, I learned real quick that um, spending hours Playing video games is not going to be a conducive behavior to have a healthy marriage for my wife and I. She wants to go do things. I can't say no. I'm going to sit in here and stare at the screen for hours. And then I had children. And it was like, all right, whatever time that I did dedicate to, you know, Adam time, me time, I had to cut that even more. Now to the point where it's very minor, just with my brothers and I, we have, uh, we do have PUBG Mobile. And so we'll jump on that and we'll, uh, somebody will say, you want to play and we'll do it a little bit. Bit. But it's so minor compared to what it was. You should have saw me in, uh, in middle school or high school. Needless to say, for me, I had to get to this point where I was tired of the current state of um, not being present or not cultivating the environment within my home life and my marriage and my family. I had to be tired of that to the point where I wanted to break that addiction. And then as a Christian, I didn't rely on my own strength, but I re relied on Christ at work within me, his grace at work and, and breaking chains in the name of Jesus, including even something like uh, digital entertainment and all that stuff. And that kind of behavior management principle is true for us in our day in and day out. But I have also been just praying through, do we see this at work when it comes to the concept of spiritual awakening in which the Christian church is so tired of the current state of spiritual mediocrity that we are begging God to move, saying that we no longer want to be uh, guilty of the same behaviors we grew up in and the same state of just, say, spiritual apathy that we see all around us. We want to take our faith seriously, embrace the lifestyle and the pursuit that we see in the New Testament with the disciples in the book of Acts. And let's really lean on God to change our life and the lives of those around us. And so this idea of God moving with spiritual awakening is the emphasis of the passage we see today. And it inspires us to see how quickly the movement of God is occurring in the New Testament. It goes from the handful of disciples to then about 500 people who've seen Jesus. There's 120 or so at one point. And, um, and then thousands respond to Peter's message, which we looked at last week. And then today we see that it wasn't 
just limited to those who were in Jerusalem, but it's expanding around the known world. And at this point in the story, you have a guy named Paul and several on his team who are taking the gospel message all around. So we're going to read about one of the cities that receives this, and they're doing ministry. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 17, and we will work through the first story here. If you have time later today or tomorrow, you should read the rest of Acts 17 to see the similarities of the different cities that they go to and they preach the gospel. For our time, we'll limit it to the first, the first city called Thessalonica. So it starts off this way. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. All right, verse 4 tells us the response. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Uh, as did, so there's a handful more, a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So a bunch of devout, devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I want to pause here in the story to talk through this a little bit because this is a quick way to summarize the miracle of salvation and the gospel message stirring and at work within a town. In light of this moment, we, we see how salvation is, is the story of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news that Jesus atoned for our sin on the cross. And when we respond to that message with faith, we receive all the rights and the benefits of being a follower of Jesus Christ, a son or daughter in God's family. Paul's explanation here was really simple. He says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And also, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Well, a few other writers describe the necessity of the gospel and Christ on the cross. One is Buck Parsons. He wrote this only, he said this, our only hope is in Christ alone, not in wishful thinking that all nice people and all good people go to heaven. And we also want to remember that belief in Jesus Christ is more than just salvation in heaven. It's more than just something that we get to enjoy one day in eternity, which eternity lasts forever. And, uh, you know, the amount of time we give to things on earth, that's very fleeting, very, very, very quick time on earth compared to eternity. Well, our salvation also has great impact now, the day in and the day out of our lives. So, for instance, R.C. Sproul described it like this. He says, not only does Christ take our sins, our debts, and our demerits, but he also gives us his obedience, his assets, and his merits. So, Paul proclaimed the gospel, and how did the people respond? Well, the, this first group, they responded with belief. It's wonderful. You have those who were Jews, and they were devout Jews. They were listening, and they're responding with belief. Not everyone, which we'll read about in a moment, but some are responding. The, the Greeks are responding. There's a handful of, well, a whole group of women, they're responding. And as we read this in the story, we just kind of move on to the next part. So before we do, I want to pause because the miracle of salvation is so wonderful. I want us to really chew on and process all the different factors that are happening with that. So first of all, when somebody comes to Christ, there's usually three different people involved. The first person is the messenger, the Christian who is sharing the good news. 
The second person would be the person who needs to hear that good news. That person is sometimes described as a non-Christian or a not-yet-Christian. I like that term, um, an unbeliever, you know. And then a third person involved is the other Christians, those who either send the first one to the ones who are praying for the people who do not know the Lord, and they are doing all the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Romans 10 describes this process a little bit. It says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we see a few different factors with a Christian and then the not yet Christian and then other Christians who are supporting that work. And that's, um, that's like kind of people related. But then we also see a dynamic with God and his relationship in that whole exchange. All persons of God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all involved when it comes to salvation. And it's a wonderful thing. I want to give you a couple highlights on that. First of all, God the Father, he's involved. We know from Scripture that he has chosen the unbeliever to be saved. This is called the doctrine of election, which has a couple of controversies within it. But the actual umbrella term is quite clear throughout Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and John 6. The, the challenge is the manner in which God has chosen those to be saved. And that is a mystery in many ways on this side of heaven. But we do know that God the Father is involved in that capacity Secondly, we see God the Son. He reveals himself as the way, the truth, and the life through his word. Sometimes he complements the truth and the inerrancy and the, and the beauty of scripture. Sometimes he, he, he <clears throat> comes alongside and gives somebody a dream or gives them a sign to help affirm what God has already been working in their heart. Those dreams tend to happen with those outside of our local community. I tend to hear those stories from those who are testifying about the work that's happening in Africa or the work happening in the Middle East or over in Central Asia. There's a lot more of those stories um, than, than, uh, than just maybe reading God's word and, and responding to the proclamation of the word. But even in those cases of something that might be more unique, those things still support and affirm what scripture already says. And if <clears throat> a quick side note on this, anyone who might tell you that the church is dead, like globally and stuff, they don't have their eyes open to how God is really moving. Because you see throughout the world today, people are responding to the gospel. Maybe not so much in our own neighborhoods, but around the world, it's amazing what is happening. You have, the, say, the church in Iran. One generation ago, there might be like a thousand Christians. And today, one, just one generation later, you have up to 500 million, over 500 million, actually, who've responded to the gospel. And it's the fastest country with the church growing there. And as far as continents go, just this week I was reading one a writer who said that in Africa there is, uh, he suspects, based on the trends, that within 10 years there'll be over a billion Christians in that continent. And then same with Central Asia. There's movement of God throughout the area. And so let us not believe any sort of lie that the church is dead. So that's Jesus, his involvement there. He reveals who he is and the truth of who he is, often using his word as the primary vehicle for that. And then the third person is the Holy Spirit, and his role is preparing the soul and awakening the mind and then regenerating the heart. And we'll talk about that more later. But all three persons are involved, okay? So I know we just read uh, people, we're persuaded 
and then they joined. That's, now we use words like, say, convert or place faith or something. In this case, they joined, they're on board, and uh, let's see how the community responds. We might think they're going to be pretty excited. They're going to throw a barbecue for everybody, but they don't. They're incredibly angry. So verse 5 says, The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Okay, that's that verse. I want to pause on this because this is such a, an unexpected response if you are unfamiliar with the book of Acts and how God's movement occurs and how people tend to respond. You have those who respond with great belief, and then you also can have those who respond with anger and rage, and they do not want to see it. In this case, you have these devout Jews. They are the, those who are longing for the Messiah. Well, he's already come and gone. I mean, he died on the cross. He resurrected. He ascended. And Paul and others are testifying to this. Well, these Jews are, don't want to have anything to do with it. Here they are deceived. We can attribute that to the adversary, Satan. He is deceiving them, blinding them with spiritual blindness. He's stirring jealousy in their hearts. It was so uncontrollable that they formed a mob to go attack these Christians. Now, this isn't the first time this happens. If you were to rewind a little bit in the book of Acts, you'll see that even Paul himself, the one we're reading, the one who's proclaiming this gospel, he himself authorized this same sort of response against the Christian movement, and he authorized the martyrdom of a man named Stephen. And so Paul is experiencing what he himself also did. And in this moment, you see an example of the enemy trying to thwart God's work. It happened in Acts, and it happens today. When there is genuine salvation, when there is pure worship, our enemy takes notice and he tries to attack. He can attack you in your own heart. He can attack you within your marriage or your family or within a church. He can stir discord. He can stir jealousy. He can stir all the different variations of sin from gossip to inappropriate interactions with all sorts of people. And he loves it. Just causing a big mess where God is trying to do this work and where people are trying to respond and to worship. And if he can't break that defensive line within the church, because they're just, they're saying, these, these are our non-negotiables. We're not going to let the enemy ruin his work here. Well, then he can begin to use the outside community and just wreak havoc on his work. It happened when Paul did it. It happens here in Acts 17. And then we can see this even today. Years ago, I watched this documentary featuring a town called Manchester in Kentucky. Anyone ever been to Manchester, Kentucky? No, I haven't. I actually don't know where it is on a map. It's Eastern Kentucky. That's all I know. I'm from West Virginia, so Eastern Kentucky is like our, you know, our like rivals, brothers across the river, and all that stuff. And over over on that side of the uh, of the state. But in 2004, so you're talking 18 years ago, God broke out with spiritual awakening. You had the Christians in the community who were fed up with watching their town completely crumble due to the abuse and use, usage of pain medication. And it was known as the painkiller capital of the nation and people were dying from these like in 
record numbers and the churches gathered together, the pastors gathered and they said like enough is enough. So they began to pray, they began to do different events, different activities and work to stomp this out. And people were really responding. All sorts of people started placing their faith in Christ. They were breaking the chains of addiction. They were getting saved. They were getting baptized. It was so powerful, it was taking an economic hit on the drug dealers. And so this part of the, of the uh, documentary that I was watching, it was the pastor saying I had somebody who uh, was pretty angry with me, and he confronted me, pulled a gun in my face, and uh, you know, was telling me to stop this work. And I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, everyone's got different business interests. In his case, he was losing business, and it was, the guy was not happy with it. Well, we must, even today, whether that's that community or here in Scripture, wherever it might be, let us stay alert because spiritual combat from the enemy is relentless, and he will fight tooth and nail to stop God's work. We don't want to lose hope when the enemy attacks. In fact, we want to concentrate our focus even more. I love this quote from old school theologian John Calvin. He wrote this, No matter how many strong enemies plot to overthrow the church, they do not have sufficient strength to prevail over God's immutable decree by which he appointed his son eternal king. So let's not be ignorant. Spiritual awakening has ripple effects. It has it within the community. It can have it within a church family. As I think about like a church family, we want to share the gospel with all sorts of people. And we will begin to see God work and then move. And what that means is that uh, certain comforts that we've become accustomed to begin to be threatened a little bit. So we might be surrounded by some people that we don't really uh, uh, aren't really familiar with. We, they might, we might be surrounded by people who talk different than us or look different than us or smell different than us or dress different than us. And that could cause us to be uncomfortable. Well, hey, that's a holy discomfort you take to the Lord. You might find uh, there to be all these people who need to hear uh, or need to grow in their faith. And you are the only person who know, who's known Jesus longer than everyone else sitting there. And you're like, I've never led a Bible study before. But it's time, and that could cause a holy discomfort, but that is there. I was telling Neil, actually, I told the, the first service, how in the, uh, you could have so many people responding, uh, all these different baptisms that, like, Neil starts to get super jacked, and people are like, Neil, what's your workout plan? And he's like, well, I'm just baptizing a lot of people. And everyone's like, wow, man, that's the, that's, that's a, that's a, I guess that's a, a good holy discomfort, right? And people, all those muscles and stuff like that. But even within our families, like in a, in a challenging way, we pray that our children know to come to know Christ, that they grow in their faith, that they're devoted to the Lord. And what if they end up growing up a little bit and they're like, you know, mom or dad, I, I want to go to church today and not go to my practice. Or, you know, I'm going to skip this um, this event because I want to go to the church retreat or church camp. And you're like, oh yeah, but we committed to that or I already spent money on that. Like, at what point are we going to try to emphasize and value and celebrate our children's devotion to the Lord, whether it's our kids across the barn or in this community, that the thousands of them would respond to the gospel. And I'll tell you, you have even more thousands and thousands of children respond to the gospel. That affects all sorts of different things that we might do, and it might make us uncomfortable, and uh, it might require more of us 
And I say, let's, let's embrace it. The holy discomfort of God's movement and spiritual awakening. Let's, let's go for it. Well, verse 6 tells us a little bit more of the story. So let's, let's read this together. It says, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king. Right? There's another king named Jesus. Go tell Caesar. He's like, you know, they're a bunch of, um, I don't know, traitors or something. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so that's the, that's the snapshot of what happened there in Thessalonica. Again, if you were to keep reading in verse 10, you'll read about how Paul and Silas move, go to another city. They do the same stuff and then go to another city. And so you can read those stories for, your, for yourself. But with this story here in Thessalonica, verse 6 screams to me because it has one of the best descriptors of the early church. It says that they turned the world upside down. The community is looking at the saying, hey, whatever they were doing before, they have brought that same stuff here. It is causing a whole ruckus. In fact, if you read other parts of Acts, let's see here. I believe it's a couple chapters before. If I can find it, I'll tell you real quick so that you can, you can uh, read it for yourself. Oh, I don't know where it is. It's all in there, all right? All these different pages. <laughs> There's just people who are responding, and it's causing a holy disruption within the community, economically and relationally, and people aren't liking it. They're turning the world upside down. I love that phrase. The gospel influence was so disruptive that the whole town was impacted. Now, in a moment, I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit empowered them to be so impactful. But before I do that, I'm reminded, even reading this and that verse, that portion of verse six, I'm reminded of a couple years ago when the pandemic was first starting and everybody was in their houses and nobody was gathering in church buildings. And I had to drive to the office to stream the sermon there. So I'm driving, I'm driving past a bunch of my friends' churches as well. And the lots were empty, the lights were off, and my heart was hit. Uh, like a punch to it, actually. And I was the one who, all before this, I could sit with you at coffee and I could talk to you about, hey, listen, the church, like we are the church, like every day. And we can gather, we can have Bible study. It doesn't have to be corporate worship in the fullest sense as Americans have kind of corrupted. And I could, I could take you down all sorts of different trails. And yet it was during, I don't know, those three or four months that God shaped a conviction in theology, I had not uh, fully gone to before, and now I get to carry through the rest of my pastoral ministry, and that is the importance and the urgency and the, the value of corporate worship. And so as I was going through and seeing all these empty churches and stuff, and I was just thinking, like, what is, this is so weird, what is happening? Uh, you know, it's one thing to look even in hindsight, but in the moment, it was um, a lot was stirred with that. There was a lot of fear in the community, a lot of chaos, uncertainty. Well, I began to use that as a chance to pray for a, a great reversal in which if it's going to look like a ghost town, one day, Lord, would you move? And it would be so empty in the streets and empty in the homes. No one's out mowing the grass. No one's out just doing activities. Where are they? Well, they are in churches. They're worshiping the Lord. No, I was just praying the Lord praying to the Lord, asking him to move in a way that would be so, it would be so uh, 
powerful that you have some tourists driving, say, from D.C. down here, had to stop at Sheets, get some gas, asking the person inside, where is everybody? Why is only one person working in here? Why was, like, food line closed until one? What is happening? And like, well, everyone in this town goes to church. They all worship Jesus. Like, they all got saved. And that mindset has been one, uh, one that has guided some of my prayers regarding what was and, and what can be. That's what comes to mind when I think, what, did, what would it look like to turn this community upside down for the gospel? Well, back to Acts 17. How did the church have an impact that that upheaval was described as turning it all upside down and causing all this stuff? Well, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's this lesson that will finish our study this morning. The Holy Spirit moved through Paul. He moved through Silas and Jason and all the others that aren't named to give them boldness to proclaim the gospel, to give them clarity in explaining the gospel, and then also to give regeneration in the hearts of those who were listening. He was at work. He was moving in wonderful ways. So I want to describe for you what the Spirit's conviction and regeneration looks like at the moment of conversion. What does that mean? And it can be described several different ways. It has a legitimate uh, most, most denominations or theologians have an actual description of how they would describe regeneration, which is simply put the change of the heart or conviction, which would be um, <clears throat> a holy conviction or a holy uh, awareness of your guilt and sin. But I want to read for you a whole bunch of different ways that I would describe this from just several different angles. And this actually reflects my heart for our community as well. So the first, like, what, to, what does conviction and regeneration look like? How, how does, what's the Spirit doing? What's He doing? Well, one phrase is that the Holy Spirit went before those who heard the Word. Another is that the Holy Spirit disturbed their inner being so much until they had peace with God. Another way to put it is the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to their guilt before a holy God and eternal danger in hell. What's conviction and, and the whole process of regeneration? What's that look like? Well, it's the Holy Spirit clarifying the joy of having all of our sins completely taken off of our account and placed on Jesus' shoulders. Another way to say it is the Holy Spirit reveals the beauty of being adopted into God's royal family. Another way is the Holy Spirit shaking us to our core so convincingly that we have to cry, Abba, Father. Another is the Holy Spirit showing that he wants to infuse our dry bones and our dead heart with life. Another is the Holy Spirit giving rest, or I, not that at all, the Holy Spirit giving no rest until we are completely surrendered to the story of God's love. Two more for us. The Holy Spirit awakening our conscience to our insurmountable guilt of sin and our desperate need of Jesus' salvation. And then lastly, it's the Holy Spirit revealing to us that we cannot earn our salvation through good works and that we need to believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus did what was testified and he really is who he claimed to be, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, when the world is turned upside down, this is a lot of the movement and the interaction that our God has among the people, among those listening to the gospel. It is, it is explained with scripture, with some theological terms, with our own story and our own testimony that affirms all those different things. And this is what we read in the book of Acts. 
This is what we see in different parts of the world today. This is what we can read about that has happened in parts of our community or our nation in years past. And the question is, do we want to see that in our own community today? And I do. I want to see that in green. I want to see that in the surrounding counties and in this region. So at the beginning, I mentioned after party, right? This whole phrase, how did the disciples respond to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ? Well, they explain who Jesus did. They explain what he did. They explain why they believed with their whole heart in who he is. They were bold for eternal matters, regardless of the potential beating that they took, which they took it quite often. They focused on their spiritual duty, not on the danger that lied ahead. And so for the last few weeks, I have challenged you to pray through who does God want you to share the gospel with, specifically six people that he's put you in relationship with, those in your family or friends or neighborhood, those that you can say, I want to commit to with my, my, like my best energies to just pray for their soul that they would be receptive to the gospel, even if the most hardened heart, and I've seen such hardened hearts respond to the gospel. It's actually every time it happens, I think, oh, that was the one person I thought no way could they respond. And then they do. And it's the dude who's like been raised in it for 30 years who just still can't grasp it. And I, I don't know, everyone's different. God has different plans and everyone responds differently. It's so uncertain, but God has placed us around all these people who need to hear the gospel. They need to see it lived out among them and through you lived out. And so who are those six people that God has prompted you to pray for and to testify to the majesty of Christ and his work on the cross? If you're thinking, well, just, what if the opportunity came this last week and I wasn't really sure what to say, well, then let me just remind you, share your story. Share what your life was like before you met Christ. Share how you heard about him, like what that process was like when you, when you met Jesus, right? He's not some abstract picture on a wall or a dead God or anything. He's alive. How did you meet him? And then lastly, how has he walked with you in life? In the highs and the lows. Remember, when it comes to your testimony, God sustaining you since you placed your faith in Christ is just as awesome as God saving you in that moment. Like, tell the whole story. Who is God to you? You can walk through that and you can tell that. And so, friends, who are the the six different people? And uh, after you work through those six, hey, we'll add another to the list. But for, for the first step, I just want to give you something to work with. We can all identify six different people. We can commit to praying for them each, each day of the week. And I want to encourage you to write their names down on the cards on your, on your chair. If you're wondering when you sat down, what is this card and what is the pen? Well, use these cards to write down the names of those folks that the Lord has brought to your heart who are in your life. Again, it's not something where you have to create some outside and unique event and outreach opportunity. We're all surrounded and living among people. Unless you literally are like in a cave all day long, then even then, jump on Facebook and you find some, some people. So... While we worship here with this final song, I want to encourage you to to take the list uh, that you've written out and then to bring that to the cross over here if you would like, doing it as an action of saying, I want to commit these folks to the Lord, bringing them to the foot of the cross that God would awaken their heart and their mind. Yeah, the band, you guys can come on up here to lead us in this final song. And I want us to be able to signify just our commitment to share the gospel with them and our prayer that God would save them. And, uh, and you can work on writing some of those out right now.
while you're doing so, I recognize that some of us in the room would be those that are actually written on the cards because your friends or your family member has been praying for and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with you. Their desire is for you to place your faith in Jesus. And here you are listening, and maybe for weeks or months or years, you have listened to the story of the gospel and its impact and what he can do and who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. And if that is you, friends, this morning you got to listen to a wonderful breakdown of even how the Holy Spirit works in your heart and the stirring that he brings you into. And my prayer is that he will continue to do that. And so if you're hearing all that and you're thinking, I need to respond to the gospel this morning, well then while everyone else is going this way to put some cards in, uh, I'll be standing over here and some others of us will be too. And we'll be available. We want to pray with you, answer any questions you might have as well, and just respond as a church family to the gospel message, okay? So everyone, uh, let's just remind ourselves that uh, I, I love this quote of just like the importance of responding to Jesus today. This is from J.C. Ryle. He says, there is no repentance in the grave. There is no conversion after the last breath is drawn. Now is the time to believe in Christ and to lay hold of eternal life. All right, so no matter where you're at, remember Jesus does not show partiality. He receives any humble person from any background. The, as I read this week, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we can all respond to him. All right, let me pray for us. And